Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're with Paulina Porozkova. In the 80s, she reached a level of global fame that put her in the category of celebrities that need only a single name as an identifier. If someone said to you, Paulina, you knew exactly who they were talking about. But to borrow a line from her book, when she was the most seen, she felt the least heard. Now you will hear from her and you can read her in her new book, No Filter. Paulina, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for that nice introduction. You know, one part of like why I became a one name model initially is because nobody could pronounce the last name. <laughs> <laughs> that was really just to make it easier. Well, you, you definitely owned the Paulina space. That is That belongs to you and you alone. And I am thrilled. I've been waiting for somebody to break out the martini on me. And uh, so I have Hendrix Gin here. And I am told you like your martini very dirty. Very dirty. Okay, so I am off and running on that while, while we get going. The other, you know, one of the things I loved in what you said there on the seen versus heard bit is that's connected to one of the reasons why I love radio and audio only experiences because all the other senses are muted and you can close your eyes and listen to the words without the visual distractions. And it's ironic, but something about audio only is more personal and intimate. Uh, yeah, you're right. You know what? I never even thought about that, that it actually makes you, well, you have to listen. That's the only, <laughs> that's the only thing you can do, right? When somebody speaks and you, you don't see anything. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because it also, I mean, podcasts have taken off like to such a degree. There's like, it seems like everybody and their mother has a podcast these days, right? Uh, which is rather wonderful if, uh, you know, because I also, I think podcasts are, well, obviously you can drive in your car, you can listen to it, you can go on a subway, listen to it, you can um, do house chores and listen to podcasts. So it is a rather wonderful um, sort of new addition, right, to our lives. It's it's really fun. And audio in general, you know, it used to be in the, you know, decades ago, people did a lot of radio, but radio and audio is really making a comeback in that sense. And so now, like listeners, they can hear the ice against the tin of the shaker, Lean back, close your eyes, and imagine you're here with me and Paulina and a martini. Unless you're driving. In that case, don't do that. Keep your eyes open. 
<laughs> Make sure you give it a really good shake. <laughs> I I've got the uh, the shaker going. So, cheers! Thank you for uh, for being here. It's great to see you. You too. And uh, here is my little tiny little dirty martini. See, very very nice. Glass. I see the olives there. I'll be by the end of the interview. We'll be eating olives, maybe sooner. Mm. So one of the things I loved about your book, it's a collection of essays, I think 20, 21 essays in there. And each one has an overarching message that you tie together for, for the reader, a, you know, a piece of wisdom. And the wisdom and the hard earned lessons for you started very early on. And so I know you're a dual citizen of Sweden and the U.S., but you're Czech born at a time that was a difficult time. Can you tell us a little bit about the early days there, your your childhood separation from your parents when really it led to this sort of first wave of unwanted celebrity for you? Well, yeah, that's, uh, oh gosh, this story. Um, I'm going to try to condense it as much as possible because it I can take hours explaining it. Um, my parents left in 1968 um, when the Soviets occupied uh, the then Czechoslovakia. Um, seems kind of an event mirroring Ukraine, uh, mm -hmm. you know, last year, uh, except the Czechs didn't fight back. They just kind of stood by and they, we were so used to being occupied, I think, as a nation. It was just like, well, uh, here we go again. There, there, there they go. And a lot of people at that time decided to leave the country because we knew that, that you know, there were tanks parked all across all around the borders. And, and, and everybody knew that, that this was happening. This was coming. So um, a lot of people left in 1968. My parents were amongst them. They were young. They uh, they get got on the you know on a motorcycle and um, figured that was probably not the best place to uh, have a three year old child. So and they thought that once they made it across the borders, they would be able to get me. You know, somebody the Red Cross, somebody would help help them to get their their kid out as well. And that didn't happen. <laughs> they landed in Sweden. Um, they found out that they couldn't get me out because the borders had closed. They couldn't get back in because they were not criminals for having left the country illegally. And so um, uh, the next three years unfolded with my parents um, deciding to use sort of the, the opinion and media, uh, mm -hmm. you know, trying to sort of get um, shed a light on their on. Their yeah, life. it wasn't a story widely known in the U.S., but I think over in Sweden and no. parts of Europe, this was a huge story. Well, in you Sweden, personally were, were a story in Sweden. It became a huge story. It was kind of like, you know, we were their little story. I was the little Elian Gonzalez of right. Sweden, you know, the, the the little refugee girl that represented the, the ills of the of the Cold War. Uh, I not that I knew it. <laughs> I was uh, I, I was safely ensconced in the Czech Republic with my grandmother and I had absolutely no idea of what was going on in Sweden. But there would be journalists coming into the Czech Republic once in a while to take pictures of me so they could supplement it to the newspapers that were, mm -hmm. you know, talk, talking about our story. Poor little Paulina, um, you know, cries and, and, and asks God every night to be reunited with her parents, which wasn't actually true. It was something that the photographers asked me to, to, to pose to look like I was sad. Yeah. And because I wanted to go out and play, I figured obliging them would be quicker than refusing. Well, how, how long was this going on until your, your mom came back and ultimately got arrested trying to get you out? Yeah, so that lasted for three years. Then my mother came back, attempted a kidnapping, which failed. She was put in jail. Um, and then she was taken out of jail because, again, she was so famous in Sweden that, uh, that, that you know, like... They could put some pressure on a little bit. Exactly. Um, 
And that lasted for another three years uh, where my mother was under house arrest. She gave birth to my little brother who she was pregnant with when she attempted the kidnapping of me. And um, so when I was nine years old is when uh, the, I guess, Czechoslovakian government had had enough bad press and bad publicity and enough headaches uh, with us. And they said, okay, you know what? Passport's here. Mm-hmm. Don't ever come back. And that's how we ended up in Sweden. So you're in Sweden and then you have a friend who takes some photos of you. I, I've learned this from various forms of research, but also your book, uh, who takes some photos of you. And I guess sometime around 1980, this very famous model scout sees these photos and being the talented model scout that he is, says to you, want to go to Paris? Okay, that's not entirely accurate. I'm glad I'm going to get to set this right. It was not an all famous model scout. It was just this old lady that lived. Oh, in I, our I read a name town. like, uh, you know, this, this is yeah. like, I love Wikipedia, but I suppose sometimes there's something that's not totally there. So it, was, it wasn't this famous, uh, gosh, I can't remember oh. the name now, but this is in print oh, out there. Well, great. So I'm gonna <laughs> we'll straighten it out here. Um, <laughs> so yeah, who was no, this was lady just, that uh, found you? She was, a, she was a former hand and foot model. Um, and she uh, and and I think she needed a little additional income, so she advertised in the local newspapers uh, as having a modeling school. And uh, and my friend sent her pictures in that she had taken of me because she wanted to do makeup. Uh, she sent in the pictures to this lady to just to ask what she would do in order to become a professional makeup artist. And the lady got back to her saying, "Hold on a second, how?" old is that girl how tall is she and how uh how much does she weigh um so and and how old were you at that time i was 14 my gosh and she did have some connection to john casablanca that's the name that's it yeah well john casablanca was the then owner of elite models so he was kind of a, a big deal but she brought me to see him in copenhagen where he was conducting a, a model search competition in some mall and uh, he looked at me for maybe all of five minutes. And Does that even happen me. anymore, a model competition in the mall? I mean, now it probably just happens over Instagram or something. It's definitely over Instagram these days. Things have changed a lot. Yeah, well, um, yeah, back then, uh, social media didn't exist. So he had one look at me, said he, I had beautiful skin, and would I like to go to Paris? So like, at 14, you went off to Paris? No, I had managed to turn 15 okay. <laughs> um, right before I went to Paris. Wow. So, and you lived on your own there when you went for roommates? Uh, initially, I lived in a, an apartment with a modeling, um, like the head of the agency of Paris, who was a woman and, and, and her husband. Um, so I lived there for three months and then it became kind of a tense situation, which it wasn't very fun living with her. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I, I... Was there nightlife for you at 15, 16? Are you out with other models and photographers and things in Paris? Um, It must be dazzling for a 15-year-old to be in Paris and working these glamorous jobs. You know what was dazzling was um, having moved from Sweden and school, middle school, uh, where I had my head dunked in the toilet because I was a dirty communist, to going to Paris where... People said I was beautiful. That was that was a big change. That was that that was sort of incomprehensible at first, actually. Um, and yeah, sure, there was nightlife and there was uh, bookings, but it was also really really scary because I was by myself. 
Um, and I didn't really speak French all that well. I, I had taken French in, in school. So like I, you know, I could say the yellow pen is on the table, but it wasn't super helpful in the situations that uh, I was in. And every job as a model is potentially your last one. You know, it's a, it's a freelancing at its best. So, well, you had to you had to grow up fast and be sharp. I, we have a son who's thirteen, and so not much younger than you were. And the idea of him going off to live in Paris by himself two years from now is mind blowing to me. There's just no way. Um, well, so also, incredible for you to not only survive but thrive there. Um, with some tough earned, uh, you know, wisdoms, I guess. Yeah, I I survived. I uh, but it was. Uh, you know, it, it sounds so glamorous. It sounds so to kind of just like you said it, like what wasn't it, you know, you, you land in Paris at 15 and there's no supervision and there's all these parties and all these people and all this glamour in the modeling world. But I think if you read my book, you'll probably get a better sense of exactly how glamorous it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I did. And I know there were some incidents, uh, you know, you sitting in front of the mirror that one time and what you think is a sock comes over your shoulder. It's just uh, un- unbelievable. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, there's the, you know, sexual harassment that we were sort of taught was uh, compliments. But, you know, then there's also the every day at work is like being the new kid in school every day. Do you remember what that's like? Mm-hmm. Your first day in school and the insecurity of you know wanting to fit in and wanting to please people and wanting to be liked. And you don't know your you, you don't know your environment. You don't know the people. That's like every day of modeling because yeah. every day is a different day with different people in a different spot. Well, you managed to rise to the top. So by 84, your cover of Sports Illustrated. By 88, you land a massive deal with Estee Lauder for $6 million, which it, it's funny to think like in our lifetime, we can look back on a, what a dollar was worth back, whatever, you know, as a, at a time when we were adults. Uh, but, you know, $6 million in 88 was, uh, was a massive, massive number. Were you keeping journals and things and, you know, how did you sort of record your life or when you wrote these essays? I know there weren't a ton of journals to go back to, but were you, you've always had this interest in writing. Were you doing letters, writing, diaries, stuff like that? Um, I always, I have always written. I, I'm not much of a journaling person per se. Um, I think I, I sort of attempted to write novels from a fairly early age. I have all kinds of different beginnings uh of novels from my from my early years which are kind of really funny when i look through it now um you, you still have access to them i mean i've, I've bought it bottom drawer a couple of clunkers my of my own do you could you go back and uh resuscitate any of these uh no not not really uh i i did have a diary because i was 15 so i i, I didn't I did have a diary from like 15 to 16 and the rest of it, it's like on old, you know, on old computers It's like stuff that has kind of, that, that has disappeared. And, and so, uh, so because some of the things I actually have put down in writing before it's it sort of, you know, stuck in my mind, there's, yeah. there's a ton of things I don't remember or that I don't remember accurately. If, if anything, for that matter, it's like memory is so tricky, isn't it? Oh, totally. And it, it, I know what you mean about reading stuff from your childhood. I go back and not only is this the writing, what I was thinking was so immature. I'm like, my God, was I ever thinking this way? But your, your career expands, of course, beyond modeling. So you've done tons of TV and film. In 1993, you did a film, Arizona Dream with Johnny Depp. And so in 93, he's, he's a year or two older than you. And 
maybe you guys were late 20s, he was 30 or so, something like that, and you were younger. But in 93, Johnny Depp was like the number one heartthrob in the world as a man, and you were probably number one as a woman. Did you guys connect in some way on that level of celebrity and that level of interest coming in that was really sort of sexually charged interest? We did connect um, as as friends, and I really, actually, Johnny was the was a person, one of the first people that taught me what um, sort of a non judgment of of people around the people that you work with is like. Because we were on the set, and the Arizona Dreams was filled with huge movie stars. There was Faye Dunaway, there was Jerry Lewis, whose wife I'm I'm playing in the movie. Um, Lily Taylor, Vincent Gallo. I mean, it was like a star-studded cast. Uh, and so a lot of egos on the set. And Johnny, who was the world's biggest heartthrob at that time, did not act like one. Yeah. He was really kind. He was really kind to the electricians and to the crew and to, um, you know, the... Could you, could you the see it as he walked around, you know, to get lunch or something? People would be like, oh, my God. They, I mean, for certain stars like Brad Pitt, Johnny Depp, you, like people lose their minds when they get around them. Um, again, on a movie set, people know how to how to be around movie stars. You know, they're, they're they 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 don't lose their minds. And Johnny was so nice; he was so kind to the people around him that he sort of became everybody's friend. He was just like genuinely liked by everybody on the set. And I really took note of this. I thought, you know, he where he went, he created a little calm space around him. Of, of, of gentleness, of, of niceness, of kindness. And people really responded to that. And I thought, I sort of, that stuck. I was like, I, I, I want to do that. I want to be like that. You know, and we all That's Did you ever ask him about it or tell him this observation that you'd made? Um, I don't think so. I think what I did tell him was that I had a lot of respect for him because he could be off in Hollywood doing really big, Hollywood movies and instead mm. here he was in Arizona doing a weird little independent film. He did make cool um, choices with his work. Yeah, yeah, and he and he he did John Waters, Crybaby and you know he 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 made some really interesting different cool choices and I I, I really respected him for that. Yeah, he, he seems like a true artist, as are you. And I want to talk about your process a little bit in in writing because you've written a novel, you've written screenplays, you, and now you've written this book, No children's Filter, book. a, a children's book. First, it was my first uh, foray into uh, into book writing. What year was that? Book. I'm going to have to get that. Gosh, Ralphie the Roach. That must have been somewhere back in the 80s because I didn't have kids yet. I know that. Ralphie the Roach. Okay. Yeah. I will get that. If uh, I'm sure that's... Well, good luck trying to get well, it. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> you can get any one of my books for like a penny on Amazon right now. So, But anyway, I'll, I'm, I will look for it and try to find it. Um. And, and you've written, of course, this collection of essays. So, I, you know, when I talk to authors, I like to ask a, a few sort of very mechanical questions of how you do it. Like, is there a spot that you like to write? Do you have a favorite desk or chair or something? Um, well, you know, I just moved because I lived in a house with my husband for 30 years. And so I had my own little study all the way upstairs where I thought I can write undisturbed, except for when everybody would barge and go, Mom, what's for dinner? Mm -hmm. Mom, where are my socks? Mom, the cat's puking. Um, and now I am 
in my own apartment all by myself as you can see the space behind me and actually this table this is pretty much where i wrote do you like to have a play i mean some people can write on the plane or and you're you know you're going to go on a book tour here down to the miami festival and things like that can you write anywhere or do you like to be in a comfortable spot well i um when I wrote my novel, which took like five years, I'm, I mostly wrote that in my little study. So I did have like my spots, like this is my writing spot and this is where I go to write. This is like the routine of it, right? Uh, with the, with this uh, book of essays, I wrote them in three months. So I sat right here where you see me for three months. And are you writing by hand or are you putting this right into the computer? Oh, no, 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 straight into the computer. Yeah. Writing by hand is like, that's, that, that's, that feels clumsy to me now. Mm-hmm. And also, I can't read my own handwriting. So, <laughs> thank God for computers. Um, but I also did have to take a trip um, to Israel and Abu Dhabi when I was in the middle of writing this essay, this book of essays, and I had three months to finish it. So you understand as a writer, right? Three months to write a book from beginning to end. Um, so I did go to Israel and wrote through jet lag in a hotel room and that was pretty challenging. Yeah. So you, the deadline is motivating or paralyzing for you? It was motivating. For okay, me. good. It, it was a challenge to me. It was like, can you finish a book in three months? Can you do this? And I was like, do you oh, have, do you have a group of, uh, of trusted readers that you would show early drafts of things? Uh, I had one trusted reader uh, named Carrie Egan, who's also herself a uh, essay writer. And so, yeah, I would send her all the stuff I did and uh, meet up with her over Zoom in the morning, our morning cup of coffee. And she'd go and she would cut to the quick pretty quickly. She'd go, OK, P, this is boring um, here. P. We, OK, I love that. So your friends call you P? Yeah. Oh, good. Double P could be, you know, just single P. No, no, only Elle McPherson never called me P. P. Everybody calls me P. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and she would just sort of mercilessly just, you know, she'd be like, okay, this middle sucks. This is three essays, um, you you know, boom, boom, boom. And without her, I, I couldn't have done it in, in three months. You, you really do need a reader. You need to yeah. be able to yeah. have somebody that's telling you if you're like going right or wrong. Off so. the rails, yeah. yeah. Do you do you ever, I know Rick wrote some of the music. Do you ever write song lyrics? Have you, I mean, because you've done children's books, essays, novels, screenplays. Have you ever done lyrics? No, it's amazing how different, like, poetry and, and song lyrics are. Because uh, Rick was amazing at writing lyrics and poetry. But if you ask him to write a short story, it, it would be a poem. <laughs> There's yeah. no way that he could sort of, you know, turn his brain to making something have a beginning, middle, and an end. And I only think in beginnings, middles, and ends. I always... I only think in story. So I think if I ever attempted to write something uh, uh, like uh, lyric wise, it would have to be a country Western kind of a thing, mm-hmm. you know, where I tell a story through text and I'm not super fond of country and Western. So I'll pass. Yeah. I know what you mean that the song writing seems like that could happen in a fever dream of a few hours or something or an overnight, you just do it. Whereas the novel is much more of a marathon and a grind and you know, that's yeah. something you're going to labor and break rocks for a, for a couple of years on it. Exactly. You, you walk around and you live in this alternative world uh, that nobody else is privy to. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it can make you kind of, it made me feel like a little, uh, you know, like I was like there, there was my real world and then there was this al- alternate world and I could sort of escape into this one or I would get, I could escape into that one. Uh, it's, um, it was, uh, it was, it was 
it kind of messes with your head, actually. Yeah, which, yeah. Uh, which a book of personal essay does not. Well, let, let's talk uh, about No Filter a bit. I um, I, I did. I really loved it. Thank I wanted to you. ask you a bit, and you're getting great reviews. There's a New York Post is putting it in the must-read category. So congratulations on all the great reviews. It's a terrific book. Um, I wanted to. I have a couple questions. There's some wisdoms in there that I want to get to, but I also wanted to ask you about Rick, who in the book comes across as generous and loving and kind and brilliant for sure. He also comes across as insecure and controlling. And I was wondering, you have two kids uh, with Rick. They're mid-20s to 30 or so. And um, Raven and Oliver, is that? Uh, Jonathan and Oliver. Jonathan. 29 and 24. Okay. And um, were they surprised by anything they read in the book? No, not at all. They it knew was, I mean, it was. It was kind of amazing to me, actually, is when I, um, I asked them to read the book before it went to print so that I would not print anything that they didn't want said. Um, and... God, I there we Rick and I raised the most amazing human beings. It's it's such a such an honor to 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 be the mother of my children. Uh, and they read it and they went, yeah, no, this is this is we Pretty know accurate. That this is yeah. how you see things and that this was this is your story. Um, yeah, Rick's story would have been different, of course, it would have been from his perspective, but we can't get his story because he's not here. So they had clear eyes. There actually, but but they knew. Yeah, they they knew of like I was I was telling my truth, and they let me tell my truth. And they they had much of what you say in there is is really difficult stuff with the relationship with Rick. But they had clear eyes for that. They could also at least see, if not exactly what happened, they could see how it could be true. You know what you how you described him just like starting this question. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, you, you, you hit it. That's exactly right. That's how, what he was. He was all of those things and more. We're all complex human beings. We're not just like angels or devils or, you know, like you can't just put one little label on us. Yeah. Well, you're very generous about your connection. I love the line in the book where someone, a friend, a, mutu- a friend of both of you, is describing the two of you together, I guess, sort of in your in your best moments, I suppose. I mean, we all ups oh, and downs. Oh, yeah. it was so good that the, you, you two had your own special language and to be around you talking with these jokes that only you two get is like eavesdropping on dolphins. That is perfect. I love that. Yeah, but Griffin is a really good writer too. Yeah. But some of the wisdoms in the book I wanted to just touch on. So there are a number of essays, and as I mentioned earlier, each one kind of ties in this. You, you do a great job of tying together the, the theme as you take us through this journey of the message um, on each one. In the first one, you talk about Instagram a bit, and you've become a huge force on Instagram for your raw honesty. And one thing you said you love about Instagram is that it gives a voice to your face. And uh, I, I do really like that. I think it's... One of the frustrating things for me is I look at social media and its capacity to go, to do good, and the unfortunate result of how infrequently it is used for good. It really can be more of a force for evil in a way. Sure. Um, but, but I would also assume that you, being a writer, you're mostly on Twitter, right? Well, my publisher is encouraging me to do more Instagram. Apparently, Instagram is better for books. So I, I'm on Twitter too, uh, but I'm on Instagram and you know I do all of them. I do what they tell me. You know, I just hope they keep letting me publish books so I do what they tell me. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> um, but you, so you really do use it for what what good it can be. You're, you're 
making genuine connections and you're reaching people and helping people. And I've heard you talk about narcissism in different ways. Can you talk about social media and narcissism and how you see that? Well, I mean, I think that um, there is um, the nar- narcissism in social media is inherent. I mean, that's obviously, you know, um, I mean, not, not necessarily a bad thing. Like that's just sort of putting it out there is really a bad thing because narcissism, you know, a he- there's a healthy dose of narcissism, which you need in mm-hmm. order to uh, be present, you know, not not just slink away in a corner and sit there. Um, and and yeah, sure. Social media has. I think tweak that level of what we considered healthy narcissism to much higher. Um, and, and that's just, I mean, that's the function of it, right? It's like, we do have to, um, you know, you want to promote your book, you have to promote your book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Lisa over there is not going to promote it for you. Yeah. You have to go on there and be like, Hey, everybody, guess what? I've got a great book coming out and yeah. I want you to read it. And then you, if you just say that, nobody's going to buy your book. You, you actually have to develop, I guess, what they now call a brand. Um, and, I, and, and to me, it was all just accidental. I had no, I wasn't, I didn't set out on social media to become um, an influencer. Well, that, that seems like one of the differences with you. Like your, some of your early and present stuff, like what, what has made you stars was much more altruistic. You weren't saying... You know, one of the differences between you and the Kardashians, for example, and this is I'm, you know, I'm in the cheap seats here. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you were making genuine connections and you were looking to help people and and share your experience in the same way. I mean, I want to read a little bit later about open field and what that means and what Maria Shriver is talking about there. But we'll get to that. But I, I think that is part of what you as a guide were doing on Instagram. And, and you talk about this in one of the essays, how it, how it reached a person and made them feel better. Kim Kardashian, I don't think is, you know, if she puts a photo out of her butt and that inspires someone to do better, that's fine. But that's not what she's, she's doing a business and it's a little bit more transactional with her. Whereas you actually were making connections and doing altruistic things. It wasn't like a business transaction for you to make these posts. True. But to be absolutely honest, it wasn't absolutely altruistic and on my end either because the, like my, um, my really vulnerable posts that it wasn't to make other people feel better at first. Uh, it was because I was drowning and I was, I was holding out my hands going, please, somebody is there. Is, is there somebody out there that, that hears me? Mm-hmm. And when I realized that there was a whole lot of people that heard me and that were in similar situation, that's when it dawned on me that, um, we could actually help each other out. Like they helped me out by being there and saying, I hear you. Um, I'm in a similar situation. I'm in a dead marriage or, you know, Mm -hmm. my husband has passed or, you know, bad things have happened to me. And just connecting, knowing that we were not alone made a huge difference in, in my life. And so, and my, you know, followers have said the same, it made a difference in their life. So the, the, benefits of it became apparent only yeah. a little bit later so initially it was a completely well that, that is such a positive use positive use of self of social media um which i do think is sadly i, I hope it becomes more common and and your example is repeated by others there's this great quote by ken burns the documentarian historian and he says social media is not social full stop and if you need 
an example of that, walk into a room full of teenagers who are together, but not together because they're all looking on their individual devices. And, and, you know, with kids, my kids are younger than your kids. We're sort of entering the phase where social media and snap and these other things can be treacherous. And so the schools are all talking to us about it, you know, how to handle this kind of thing. And social media scares the hell out of me, but it's, it's wonderful to see someone use it in the positive way that it clearly has the capacity to be used. Um, and so hopefully your example is, is followed by more people. What do you think about Olivia Dunn? Do you know that she's the gymnast at LSU and she's on, she's a huge Instagram star as well. She's making millions of dollars and she's an undergraduate. And so for a, these hardworking college athletes, they've never been able to make money before on this kind of thing. And so she's out on Instagram and she has tons of followers and she's making a lot of money that she can now accept, which, you know, years ago you really couldn't, but she does get criticism for sexualizing herself and the sport of gymnastics a little bit. Do you, do you have thoughts on that or are you following Olivia Dunn by any chance? I kind of curate my feed to mostly follow women who inspire me. So, and that tends to be women my age or older that mm-hmm. are on a, you know, on similar journeys. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I'm sorry. I don't know much about okay. that, but I do have something to say about sexualizing yourself, um, on social media, um, uh, because I think there's a very, very fine line between um, objectifying yourself and celebrating yourself. That's something that I'm obviously very familiar with, having been a model and having been objectified my whole life. And I really think that the difference is it's like when it's your choice, when it's your choice to show your body, when it's your choice to put yourself out the, put yourself out there in the way that makes you feel good and happy about yourself, well, then it's a celebration of you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if, if, and if you don't like it, there's a thing called unfollow. It's really freaking easy. Yeah. That, that always boggles my mind. Like, you know, someone has some massive, it's like, well, why are you following them? You chose this. Like, <laughs> right? I know it boggles my mind yeah. too. I'm like, yeah. Do you not understand the unfollow function? Like it's pretty easy. So there are a couple other quick ones from your essays I wanted to touch on. Um, one is, this is on, uh, I have the advanced copy. It's on page 25. I don't know if that translates to the, to the hardcover. But you talk about the, this irony that you found you judge others more for having been judged, not less. Um, you now, I mean, to look at you now, maybe that's you of decades ago, because you've seen the least judgmental person I've ever met. Uh, now so maybe but maybe you have to go through being a judgmental person and learn firsthand that that is not the way uh what what do you think about that you know what thank first of all thank you i love you you're you're amazing for for being so (laughs) kind to me um second of all no i don't think you have to have gone through being a judgmental person to then become um you know a, a person who embraces all um, I had to. That was my journey. And I and I look, you learn judgment the same way you learn love by being loved, by being judged. You know, it's it's not something you pick up from from text. It's 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 your surroundings. It's your pair. It's the parenting around you. It's your it's your peer group. And that's how you learn to be the person you are. And I was, um, you know, I was exposed to a lot of judgment. And that's how I learned to become a very severe judge. And how did you break out of that then? Because you're not that um, clearly. Yeah, I worked really hard on 
leaving that part of myself behind because it was making me miserable. When did you, when do you feel like you first became conscious of my God, I'm a judgy person. Was there a moment where you're like, I got to dial this back? Um, you know, uh, actually my experience with Johnny Depp, I think to a certain extent, that was like the first little inkling Mm -hmm. that, you know, what, what being snobbish and sort of judgmental of other people of lower stations does to you as a person, it was kind of an inkling, but, um, my husband and I, and I were so good at, at judging others, um, and, and so strictly, uh, that it wasn't until our marriage started to disintegrate and I just made a conscious choice that I wanted to be a different person because I was so miserable anyway. I was miserable about everything. And I realized that when I was looking, actually, I was looking on social media and I would see my peers and I would sit there in this little cauldron of of, of uh, misery seeing all these women have beautiful enchanted lives and perfect families and great trips and beautiful clothes and i was just sitting there like a little troll under a bridge going why is it not me she sucks and then and then then it sort of dawned on me that 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 was actually my own problem it had nothing to do with them i'm in control of changing this yeah yeah i can change that narrative How, how about how about just going, looking at it and going, how wonderful, congratulations, that's marvelous. The weight that lifts when you just do that, when you like, when you just, when you, when you try it the first time, you know that that's the way to go. Yeah. It just makes you feel better. Yeah. Did the process, so you set out to write this in a three month period, is that right? Yep. Did that process, so when you, when you set out and you embarked on this at the end of the three months, did you find that? going through the process of writing this book crystallized some of the wisdom for you that's in the book? Was there a benefit to you for having done it? Other than the advance check. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> um, I, you know what? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even quite sure, honestly, because again, the book was such a, you know, slashing your wrist, letting the blood flow, uh, and sort of releasing everything that I had, that had been in my brain, nothing but that had been in my brain for the last two years when I sat down to write this book. So um, all those, like the insights that I had when I was writing, there was there was a few, there was a few that came while writing, but not many, M- much of that I had already worked through mm-hmm. and kind of come to terms with and understood. Um, the essay, uh, called Occupied. I wrote in Israel when <clears throat> Ukraine was invaded by Soviet, by Russians. And that one just kind of tumbled out. And the conclusion of it too, of me sort of drawing a parallel between, you know, having grown up under occupation and then somehow being, you know, mistaking love for, for occupation uh, or wanting that kind of love. Um, that came out as I as I wrote the essay, and it was kind of shocking to me. And I'm not even entirely sure that it's that it's correct, but it mm-hmm. it, it is. You know, it, it did make me think about it. Cool. Um, so one uh, one thing I wanted to read. I have the book here. I was just sort of looking through to the chapter of occupied, and you know, I, I mentioned we're going to do a, a lightning round of questions at the end. But before we get to that, I did want to read a bit. 
uh, of this letter from Maria Shriver at the opening of the book about what Open Field is. So you're with Penguin, Penguin Random House is your house, and you're with an imprint called Open Field that Maria Shriver started. And um, she writes about Open Field and describes it as a place beyond fear and shame, beyond judgment, beyond loneliness and expectation, a place to help each other toward acceptance, toward peace, toward happiness. And the books under this imprint will be maps to the open field written by guides who know the path and want to share it. And I, you know, you are the perfect writer for this. It's great. I can see why you and Maria came together for this. You are one of those guides. Well, Maria knew it. Uh, I didn't. So, you know, this is, this is all, this is all her. And I am uh, eternally grateful. I think. <laughs> <laughs> the book tour is just getting started. We'll see where this yeah, goes. Exactly. Yeah. Like talk to me in three months from now, whether I'm grateful or not. All right. So we're on to the lightning round. I'm going to fortify myself here with, with an olive. And, um, um, myself too. so your favorite book as a kid. Um, at like a, a small kid or an older kid. Cause I have under a 14. Kids. Under 14. Okay, so that would have been um, uh, a tree, tree Grows in Brooklyn. All right. Which is an American book. <laughs> By the way, do you ever write sense. in Swedish or what, what are your other languages? Oh, yeah, I wrote, I've written in all the languages. Yeah, Czech, Czech French, Czech, Swedish. Czech, French, Swedish, and English. Okay. Yeah. You know, like Milan Kundera, right? He's a Czech. Uh, he is a writer. Czech who wrote. He also in writes French. in French, too, yeah. yeah. Uh, favorite band, but it can't be the cars. Favorite band, uh, the Fratellis. Don't even know them. I'll have to go look that up. There you go. They're a really cool band from the nineties. Thank you for broadening my my knowledge. Favorite yeah. music video, but it can it, it cannot be the Cars on this one. Uh, favorite music video. Oh Lord, God! It's such a long time since I've even seen a video. I'm sorry. I'm not making this lightning fast. Favorite video. Favorite video. This all takes me back to the MTV days of uh, like Devo and things like that. Yeah, um, I'm like I'm like seriously drawing a blank. Do I even rem- like what do I remember? Um, or favorite song? Well, that's different. Either one, you like- you choose. Um, favorite like favorite song that was a video or. Uh, it could be anything. I, this question is tough for me. Okay, too. Ki- you're, you're giving up on me basically. Okay. Right? We, we, you know, okay, you get, lady, you get one pass in the lightning round. round. You can take a pass. Um, uh, oh, oh, okay. Thank you. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Favorite book you're reading now or book you're reading uh, now. Bleak, Bleak House Dickens. One man and one woman name one man and one woman over the age of 55. You would like to praise as examples of aging. Well, gracefully. Uh, Naomi Watts, woman, and uh, man. Uh, aging gracefully, man. Uh, oh, I know. Wait, uh, Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill Nye, the science guy. Is that yeah. Bill Nye, like the guy who was in uh, that movie with Hugh Grant? Who's Bill Nye? No, Bill Nye, the science guy. Oh, is this a, is this a YouTube thing? Uh, your kids probably know who. Okay, I will go ask them. All right, he's cool. I will. I will verify his graceful, full aging tonight. A few. Oh, by the way, Naomi Watts. I just saw a show. Uh, we watched The Watcher that she's in. Yeah, me it was too. I great. just saw that. Too. Yeah, she was great in that. I couldn't get enough of her face. I think she's so beautiful. Which leads to the next question: A few good TV shows you would recommend to the listeners. 
Oh God. Okay. So I do like my uh, TV shows. Um, I've well, Succession is was freaking amazing. Uh, the Crown. I'm kind of citing ev- everything that everybody else knows. Uh, Call My Agent was probably one of my favorite TV shows of the last ten years. Was that the one in French? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the one with French with subtitles. Oh yeah. no! Yeah. Uh, fantastic show. Um, uh, and oddly enough, I really enjoyed watching Sabrina the Teenage Witch. <laughs> <laughs> Is that? Did they reboot it that I don't know about, or you're yeah, talking about the original? It's a, it's a, it's a no, it's a reboot. It's a reboot, okay. Uh, it's a reboot, uh, and it was on Netflix. And for some reason, I just found it really. Uh, I took my mind off off of things. All Enjoyable. Right. I will check that out. Uh, let's see. Uh, la- oh, best concert ever. Um, this can be the Cars if that's the best one you've been to. Then. No, I would have to say, it's a Perlman uh, Carnegie Hall. And he was playing uh, the Brahms Violin Concerto. Wow. Amazing. Last question. One piece of good advice. I know your, your book is full of good advice, but one piece of good advice for the listeners. Okay. Here's my good piece of advice. Do not offer advice when not asked for it. <laughs> That's good. Now, you are asked for it, so it was fair for you to offer that piece. Paulina, so- what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much. And um, and now I have to look up your books, too. My goodness gracious. I shall do so as soon as I have a moment to breathe. Yeah, when you come back from book tour, I'll, I'll send you a few copies. No, no, I'll buy them. I believe in supporting each other. I'm very happy to buy yours. Thanks, Paulina. You are very Great to be with you. you. Bye. Bye. And cheers. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.